Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jonathan Bailey. He is a copyright consultant, and he has a website called Plagiarism Today. He also is the founder of Copybyte.com. And through an agonizing experience, when six years of his writing and poetry and literature had been stolen online, he was called into this profession to help people not plagiarize each other. He is an expert in this area, even though he's not legal counsel. He works with legal counsel, and he helps people stay legal online. He does a lot more than that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jonathan Bailey to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I feel bad after what happened to you. Uh, after six years of writing, was lifted from the net from you. It goes to show you that sometimes the pathway into a person's calling isn't always goodness. Sometimes it's heartache. Yeah. Your calling now is due to the heartache you went through. Uh, it, it was definitely a very difficult time for me when it happened. It, it was one of those things where it was a very emotional moment for me. But I find that having been through that, and having had that emotional experience, I can connect with artists who are going through it. Because, you know, if you go to an attorney or something like that, they can help you. They can help you with the law, but they don't always empathize. They don't always have the uh, emotional connection there. And sometimes uh, that is just as important as being knowledgeable about the law and what you can do service-wise. I want to talk a little bit about the issue of plagiarism and content theft, copyright infringement, and what these things mean, actually. Definitions are important because they create the understanding for people listening. Many of us have gone to websites where we see exact or similar content lifted from other sites and slapped down there. And I really want you to talk about what it is, what these distinctions are. Well, the distinctions, there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, it's a situation where we're talking, kind of like talking about different shapes and they can have an overlap at times. Uh, plagiarism generally is described as the taking of someone else's work, whether it's uh, creative, whether it's a written work, a photograph, or anything else, and claiming it to be your own. Um, or simply leaving off attribution and letting people assume it to be your own is another way. Um, copyright infringement is sort of um, the, more le is the legal term for violating copyright law. And what copyright law does is it provides a series of exclusive rights to the copyright holder, which is usually the creator of the work. That person has a set of rights, and if they're violated, it becomes a copyright infringement. And one of those is, of course, to post copies of the work without permission online. Now, you can commit copyright infringement without plagiarism. If you take someone's work, put it on your site wholesale without permission, and you leave their name on it, it's still a copyright infringement, but it's not a plagiarism. And likewise, you can commit plagiarism without copyright infringement. For example, if you, for some stupid reason, uh, tried to claim the work of Shakespeare to be your own, it would be a horrible plagiarism, but it wouldn't be a copyright infringement because the copyright on those has long since expired. And you can also plagiarize ideas and concepts, too, sometimes, which are things that are not uh, protectable by copyright. And content theft, the third one, is kind of a general thing you see online where uh, site content in large part is being taken and put on another site, oftentimes by an automated process. And it's this idea of this massive taking of content. And sometimes it's attributed, sometimes it's not. But this is idea of 
uh, sort of an in mass repurposing of content. That's my personal definition of content theft. But that's, like I said, a term that's very much new to the Internet and still in many ways unsettled. There's something called attribution. What is that? What does that mean? Well, attribution is when you give credit to someone else for their work. Uh, for example, if you were to quote me and say, this is a quote by Jonathan Bailey, that by Jonathan Bailey part would be the attribution. And so basically, any time that you use someone else's work and you give credit, you say who it's by, that by part is the attribution. And so what about people that have article-rich sites and they buy a piece of software called Article Wizard? Someone tried to get me to buy Article Wizard to take an article and completely restructure it and spit out totally new articles. What is that? There's a whole slew of these programs, and they kind of fall into a giant umbrella known as article spinners. Um, I've heard them called article wizards. I've heard them called uh, content generators. There's a whole variety of tools here. But basically what they do is they take the content of an article or any text piece, really. It doesn't have to be necessarily an article. It be something very short, even. And they swap out words or rearrange it in such a way that it appears to be a new work. Now, a good example of this problem is you have a simple sentence. We'll say, the cat went into the house. The article spinner might take a look at two of those words, cat and house, find synonyms for them, and start plugging those in. So you might get a sentence like, the feline went into the abode, or, you know, the, the calico went into the home. That's really frightening. Really, and, really and, frightening. But see, the scary thing is, and this is what you think about with that simple sentence, if you can come up with five synonyms for each of those words, see those two words I mentioned, you can have 25 iterations of that sentence, five times five, 25. And that's just a little short five-word sentence there. Imagine doing that over a thousand-word article. You can come up with literally millions of iterations of a simple article that way, but most of them are going to be completely garbage. And it has to do with what I call the ship versus boat problem. If I say Christopher Columbus arrived on three ships, you've got an image of what a ship is. It's a big thing with masts and all that stuff. But if I say Christopher Columbus came on three boats, that's a slightly different image especially in the modern age where we think of boats as being things you put around in a lake. Um, They're technically synonyms, but they have different subtle meanings to us. And that's where these article spinners really fail. They don't catch the subtle context of these words. And they create terms, and they create articles typically that either sound like someone's really struggling to learn English or (laughs) literally sound like it was created by a computer one or the other. So that tends to be what happens. The content is usually very poor, but it's designed, systems are designed to avoid detection, both by plagiarism checkers and by Google, so that way Google doesn't think it's duplicate content and treat it as spam. So Google checks this? Google checks everything that is um, out there on the web, and what it does is it takes a look at multiple sets of content. For example, if I post an article and you post a copy of it, either, either with permission or without. So now there's two copies of this article on the Internet, and someone does a search for a term that Google says that article is the best thing for them to find. That needs to be number one. Google will take a look and decide which one of these is the authentic article, and it will put that one up, and the other one will get knocked down to what is known as a supplemental index, 
which is you sometimes will see it in Google if you do like really weird queries sometimes that uh, click here for articles that were click here for pages that were extremely similar, that little thing at the very bottom. I can't remember what the text exactly says, but it's a little thing that lets you know there was more articles to search through. Basically, no one sees it there. And the problem is, and that can work for us and against us, if Google gets it right, the spammers and the people who come after you get bumped down into that. They don't hurt you much. It's no big deal. You might not even know they're ever there. But if they get it wrong, they can put the plagiarists and the spammers and whatnot ahead of you and kick you out. Wow. So what's the remedy of prevention for this? Well, the main thing with text work especially, there's not much you can do to prevent um, your text from being copied. The reason is your text is being transported deliberately in a method that can be easily copied and easily read by machines. So there's not much you can do about prevention. The key is really monitoring and tracking your content, understanding where it appears on the web. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. Um, We'll talk about some of the more popular ones, but there are various services out there that will let you search for your content, find where it's being used, and if you find it, you can um, file cease and desist notices to get the person to remove it. You can file takedown notices with the host, and also if you get desperate and you're just really worried about the Google problem, you can file uh, takedown notices with Google and get their sites removed out of Google's index. It's basically a way to tell Google, look, we're the original one. They're an infringer. Please remove them. I know the essence of what I'm asking you. I know we both know the answer to that, but I'm an original copyright owner of my own work, okay? Yes. And I know it because I did it. And then I released it and I see blank on the internet. How does Google know who's who really? Is it by date? Is it by filing? What? It's, it's several different things that gives Google clues. Date is one. Um, if yours went up a year or a week before the other one, there's a good chance Google uh, caught yours first. Um, other things are inbound links, um, the number of links that come into your site. If you have more links in the spammer, then odds are Google's going to favor you. And just general trust of the domain, because Google makes decisions about which sites and which domains it trusts. And so, therefore, you've got a good rapport with Google. You've been in the index for a while. You rank well for key terms, odds are they're going to trust you over anyone else. Now, the obvious problem with this is if you're just starting out, just building a new site, you don't have these things. You're really starting out kind of naked here, and the problem is you're not being indexed very often by Google. You're not, you don't have a lot of trust with them, and you probably don't have a lot of inbound links yet. And so Google really struggles making determinations with sites that are new in terms of um, deciding which is the original and which is the uh, plagiarist copy. So I know that you've written a lot on your site, Plagiarism Today, about what people can do, and also at copybyte.com, and some of the myths about copyrights. Is there a couple of them you'd like to share? Um, there's a lot of them. The big one I keep hearing a lot of these days, if it doesn't have a copyright symbol, it's not copyrighted. That is not true. It has not been true in the U.S. since 1978. Um it used to be once upon a time that if you didn't put that little C with a circle on it at the bottom of everything you created, you had no copyright protection. It was essentially in the public domain. That's no longer true. That's been done away with. Everything is copyrighted the moment it's fixed into a tangible medium of expression. Um, another one I've been seeing a lot of and I'm still seeing it, if it, and it really frustrates me, is this idea that 
one way to protect yourself is to mail a copy of the of your work to yourself, sort of sort of known as poor man's copyright. It's a complete fallacy. It doesn't offer any protections. And the bottom line is, if you believe in that and you do nothing but that, you're actually hurting yourself because there are other steps you should be taking to protect your work instead. After you went through six years of writing that was taken from you and used by other people, do you wish that you had just put it in a book and maybe just released excerpts on the Internet now? Um, no, not really. You know, at the end of the day, having my writing on the Internet, I think, was a positive experience. It helped me grow a lot as a writer. There was a certain immediacy to the feedback and you know, sort of engaging in that conversation that you couldn't get by releasing a book and you know, sort of having it excerpts on the web. So I still think it was overall a good thing, but I think it really served as kind of as a cautionary tale because I think the, tr- the big mistake I made looking back on it, was that I wasn't thinking about these copyright and plagiarism issues from day one. If I had stayed on top of it and dealt with these issues as they started coming up, it probably wouldn't have been so bad. The problem was it wasn't just that so many years my work had been stolen, it's that the infringement had been going on for so long without me knowing, and at that point it had snowballed to a point that it was almost out of control. So it took a lot of time and effort and heartache to get it back under some level of control. So I think the mistake was not necessarily posting a line. It was just not being aware of these issues and not being proactive about them. Now, I know that on your site you talk about how news organizations are not as interested in checking their own work as they are on checking other people's works. (laughs) Why? Um, This has been one of the big mysteries I had. I, I, I don't know the answer to this one myself. Especially, you know, we've had recent scandals, we've had major scandals like the Jason Blair one in recent years and dozens of much smaller ones involving individual reporters who have been called plagiarizing, usually by very astute readers who notice these things. Um, the Daily Mail has actually been involved in one recently, too, in the U.K., so it's it's been a sort of an ongoing back and forth here. As far as why they prefer to check other people's content, not their own, I think a lot of it has to do with the newspaper industry itself. The industry is really struggling. It's shrinking. Uh, Readership is down. And they're looking at fighting piracy as a way of fighting the shrinking industry. And they look at checking their own work and the relatively small expense, both time and money-wise, that would take as, well, an expense that they can't afford during a shrinking market. So I, I don't necessarily think it's out of malice. I just think it's a very tough sell to get the newspaper industry to bite on spending time and money on something when the, um, they're having to lay people off left and right. When we talk about the news industry now, are you literally talking news online or news not online? Uh, both, actually. Okay. Uh, most newspapers are now both online. Most major news organizations are kind of a little bit of both now. So I think it's safe to say both. What is it about RSS that makes it so easy to scrape? Well, RSS... Um, it stands, depending upon the version you uh, are looking at, it stands for a really simple syndication. And the idea is RSS was a technology that was designed to enable things like uh, blog readers, other tools that make it really, really easy to read blog content. And what it does is it's a completely standardized format where your blog and my blog and your neighbor's blog all look very different different layouts, different colors, different HTML, 
RSS is completely standardized. You know, the headline will be between these tags, the body between this. There's a very strict, rigid structure to RSS. And that makes it easy for someone to take that RSS feed, know where the content is, pull it out, copy it, and put it somewhere else. Where with a human, with, with an actual HTML site, that would require some human element of copying, pasting, or at least some programming element or some time to create a scraper bot or something that could parse that HTML and figure out the stop start points and so forth. With RSS, you know exactly where to begin, where to end, where the content is, and it's just trivial to get it online anywhere you want it. So anybody that has RSS can expect that it's going on. Is that correct? On some More or less. Um, RSS scraping is a big problem. It's it, A lot of it depends on the nature of the blog. Um, if you have a blog that deals with keywords, that you would expect a spammer to, you know, bite into. For example, look in your spam folder anytime you want. You'll get an idea of the types of things spammers are still selling. Um, if you have keywords that are related to that, then definitely there's a high risk. I did an experiment some time ago with a, I set up a fake real estate blog. Um, and all I did was I, you know, kind of played around on the keyboard and typed words it really didn't mean much, but they, I use words like real estate and mortgage loan and stuff like that regularly and was able to show that even though the law, the law was totally unreadable, it was still being scraped, it was still being accessed and having its content picked up. So the result is, yes, it's very likely it's being scraped, but the danger is much, much greater in uh, certain categories. Got it. Can you explain to us what fair use means? I think that this confuses a lot of people. Well, we talked previously about how there are uh, copyright is a set of exclusive rights, one of them being the right to make and distribute copies of a work. Um, what fair use is, is basically a narrow exemption to those rights, where sort of copyright is the no, you can't do this. Fair use is the but, and dot, dot, dot. Basically, in the United States, it carves out a very, very narrow exempt. Well, not not actually. The United States actually isn't the most narrow. I shouldn't exaggerate. But the bottom line is the U.S. Uh, carves out an exemption where people can, without permission, copy and republish and do other things with the work, so long as um, they meet certain criteria. Basically, the overarching theme of fair use. Sorry, the the, bullet, the one bullet point is that the use has to be transformative. That means you're not um, trying to create a, a work that replaces the original, such as you know taking a photograph of a poster and then making another poster. That wouldn't be a fair use. But if you took a photograph of a poster, shrunk it down to make it a thumbnail and put it as part of a collage, you're using that work in a very small way to make another new work. That's much more likely a fair use. And the fair use test actually has four factors. I'll run through them very quickly. Um, the first is the nature and the character of the use. Um, that factor basically shows that uh, fair use favors strongly, like educational, commentary, criticism, news-related use, et cetera, et cetera. It favors those uses over just purely commercial uses. The second is the nature of the copyrighted work. Um, that's a pretty simple one. Any work that is unpublished and has not been distributed has much higher protection than the one that has been. The idea being that an author or a photographer or movie maker should have the first right of publication in most circumstances. It's very rare, so it's much more rare for unpublished works. The use of unpublished work be deemed fair. 
Uh, the third is the amount and substantiality of the portion used. And that basically says how much of the original work is being used. Is it a paragraph from a novel, which would be very likely a fair use, or are you using, you know, three chapters from it? Are you using a 30-second clip from a movie or the whole third act? You know, basically look at how much you're using of the original work. And the fourth factor is the effect of the use upon the potential market or the value of the copyrighted work. And that basically just that asks that transformative question that I just mentioned previously. This work, is it meant to replace the original? Is it going to hurt the market for it? Or is it something that's going to exist completely separate from it? Or is it possible that this use of the content might actually improve the market for it? So, and most of the time, most fair use cases, the first and the fourth factors, um, the, the nature and character of the use, and the effect upon the potential market. Those are the two that are given the most weight, though all four are considered. Many, many blog producers have articles all over their page. And a lot of the articles are not necessarily articles they personally wrote. They're posted. And I've seen this a lot, where you go to somebody's site, it's like a clearinghouse for all these articles about X, whatever that subject is. Yeah. And what they do is they're taking actual articles from all these different places and posting it as a clearinghouse on that site. So it's not like they write 50 or 75 words and then there's a link to that thing. Yeah, exactly. They're doing the whole article. Explain what that is. What does that mean? Well, from what you describe, obviously without seeing the site, can't say too much, but it sounds like that would be a copyright infringement. They are unlawfully and without permission taking the work, copying and redistributing it on their site. That would be a copyright infringement, and those copyright holders, if motivated, could, depending upon what they wish to do, could either file cease and desist notices, take down notices, or even potentially sue over it. And we're actually seeing an increasing number of lawsuits over this type of um, article aggregation right now. So one of the things that you do at Copybyte is go through people's sites and assist them to make sure that they're in compliance, correct? Yeah. Now, let us suppose that you have well-meaning people that are not in compliance, and they have to repurpose that website. What can your company do for them? Well, what we do in those situations a lot of times is we advise people that these articles have been listed, these are fine. Kind of, it starts with a basic analysis of the content. You go through, you look at everything, you find what's in violation, what might be in violation, and what's in the clear is the idea. And you advise that if they have to keep those articles that are violating, that they truncate them, that they do kind of what you described just a little while ago, where they take like maybe the first paragraph and then throw a link out to the actual site. And a lot of great social news sites do this very well right now. You look at sites like dig.com, Reddit, uh, sites like that. They do a very good job of um, showing the content, of, of linking out, using excerpts, and generating a lot of traffic and being great clearinghouses on some very interesting subjects. So you don't have to, and it shows that you don't have to have all the content directly on your site in order for it to be a clearinghouse, in order for it to be useful to visitors. And in many ways, it's more useful for them to get the content on the original sites. I know that a lot of people have an issue with people leaving their site, but it actually is a good thing. In other words, where you go to somebody's site, they have something, some type of a very important article or a very useful article, and you read a little bit about it, and then you click over and you read the original article. A lot of people are scared if people leave their site that they're losing their visitors. That's not true, is it? 
I don't think it's true. Certainly not as much anymore. It, I think it was more true before tab browsing became very, very common. I mean, these days, if I want to stay on one site and click a link that I know is external, I'll, you know, command click or right click and open to a new tab. The idea is, you know, we, through tab browsing, through the browser revolution, really, have the ability to stay on one site and visit another and close out and come right back. So I don't think the issue of losing visitors is that bad anymore. And there's always the back arrow, which they were probably going to have to use anyway. So... Yeah, I mean, it might be a page view that's lost in terms of they're not viewing the original article on your site, but given the headaches legally that that article and that page, one page view can cause, it's just not worth it. Let's talk about photos. Videos are obvious. Even audios are obvious. I've seen sites that actually take my shows and post them on their sites. I don't mean links to the show, but actually yeah. post them on their sites. I've seen people take my shows and start selling it without permission and just doing it and doing their own thing. But what about images? Let's suppose that somebody has my image on their site. Let's say they take the image from its rainmaking time of Kim Greenhouse and they post it on their site. Is that a violation? Yes, absolutely. Images have the same protection as audio, video, and text. Absolutely. Very interesting. So this is in all realms. Yeah, this is basically copyright protects all works um, of create all works of creative authorship fixed into a tangible medium of expression. So that includes all writing, pretty much. It protects um, images. It protects audio. It protects video. It even protects like um, programming code. For example, the HTML and the CSS code of your site is protected. Really? Uh, maybe not the general look and design, that kind of intangible design, but the actual code is protected as long as you're the one who created it. So, so yeah, I mean, that's how um, you see things like uh, WordPress that are licensed under the GPL. The reason they're able to have copyright licenses is because that code is copyright protected. They just choose to distribute it and license it more freely. But um, So, yeah, you have protection over the code you write for your site, and you have general protection over um, pretty much anything that fits that descriptor. Is that true with themes as well? And how do themes, like, for example, with WordPress, how do themes function then under GPL? There's actually still a huge debate about that, and I know waiting into this I'm going to get my head blown off one way or the other. One side or the other is not going to like me. You can give your own sense of where you think it's complex and where you think it's clear. Yeah, that's what I think is going on. Well, I think the deal is this. Um, with themes, there are multiple parts. Now, the idea of GPL uh, is that... If you use GPL code to write other code, so if you kind of made a derivative version of WordPress and called it SNRDpress or something, I have no idea what you would call it, um, you, that new version of it would be GPL because you're using it as a GPL license and therefore anything you create based upon it is GPL licensed. And that comes with it certain terms and restrictions and so forth. What does but, GPL mean? But GPL stands for the GNU Public License, and basically it's a license that means that you are free to use this code for just about any purpose. You can download it, you can distribute it, you can even sell it. You can do pretty much anything you want with it, but when you distribute it or you distribute anything based upon it, it has to be licensed under the same terms, and in that regard, it makes the license viral. So like I said, if you make a modification to WordPress and you distribute it, it only, it only takes effect when you distribute it. Not if you keep it just on your computer, but when you 
distributor pushed out into the world. Right. That code you distribute is GPL license too, and that makes it viral and makes sure that you know the, the idea is they don't want anyone to take GPL code, make modifications to it, and then lock down their modifications from the community. They want to make sure that everything born from GPL software goes back to it. Got it. It's the idea. Is GPL the same as open source? Does it mean the same thing? Well, open source is a, a collection of licenses and that does include GPL license. So it's very, very, so yes, in a big way, and the GPL, I think, is the most popular one. But it also includes other licenses like the Apache license, um, uh, the Mozilla license, and so forth, which are very, which from a practical standpoint are very, are very uh, much similar but from you know more of a technical standpoint, oftentimes have key differences that make them incompatible. So from more of a legal standpoint, but as far as like our perspective as an end user, very much the same effect. Um, so, like going back to the theme thing, whenever you build a theme, there's multiple parts to that theme. There's PHP files which bring in WordPress code to build the theme. You, know, you stick in the various hooks, what they call them in WordPress, in the theme in order to make the theme work. And so, and there are other elements too, like the uh, CSS files, the images that go with it, etc., that don't involve WordPress code. And I think the consensus that they automatically got when they asked for an outside consultation on this, and kind of my own personal consensus, is that there are parts of the theme, those PHP files that integrate WordPress code, probably need to be GPL licensed. But the images and the CSS, which kind of stand alone and can function on their own, probably don't. So that creates kind of a weird gray area. When you package a theme, there can be you know codes and these multiple licenses in there. And the bottom line is most theme developers, it seems, favor just GPL licensing everything just to make it consistent and easy. We used the thesis theme, and I know there was an issue with that some months ago, a big yeah. blowout about it. Um, and I didn't really understand it because I don't have a technical background, so I didn't even know what the it was that was the issue. Yeah, and basically what was going on with that kind of recap was the uh, makers of thesis were saying that things don't have to be released in the GPLS because they weren't doing it at that time. Um, people at Automatic were saying that it does. They had a huge disagreement and sort of almost blew up and went to court. But um, I believe they decided to release thesis under the GPL, and pretty much all was forgiven, forgotten, and they moved on. They did? I didn't know they did. Yeah, that, I, I believe that was the end decision. I'm not so sure about that, but I'm pretty, I'd heard that they had licensed, they had changed the license of thesis to GPL in order to placate those issues. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Still sell um, GPL code, right? Um, yeah, uh, it happened in July. Actually, uh, thesis uh, adopts GPL. Yeah. Oh wow! On uh, link, um, but it was a. Um, it happened in uh, late July of 2010. I know it was coming to a crescendo, and I really didn't understand it, but I really felt it was like primary and derivative works kind of thing. Yeah, was, was that correct? It was yeah, it's partly that. Uh, but basically, what the uh, allegation is is that when you develop a theme, since you're using WordPress code and integrating that, because you have to to make it work with WordPress, you have to put those WordPress hooks in there that you're making essentially in, a, in a sort of a roundabout way a derivative work of WordPress. 
since you're integrating so much WordPress code in there. And that was really the whole disagreement as to whether or not that was the case. Very interesting. I remember, not on Matt's part, but I remember on Chris's part, it was very heated. Well, you know, I think, honestly, it was heated for Chris, but it seemed like it was the community that got really heated on both sides. Really? Okay. yeah, I, I, I honestly, I mean, yeah, there was a pretty strong disagreement there, but I think also the community really was eager to jump and start a firefight on that one. I think that made it worse in the long run, but it ended up being resolved. I'm really, really glad because it's a terrific theme. I mean, I know there's a lot of good themes, but it's a helpful organizer. Well, I'm looking to change themes, so maybe I'll switch it to these. Just now. Yeah, Who knows? I really like it. You live in New Orleans, right? Yep, I live in New Orleans. How is it going there? How are things since Katrina? Um, things are uh, pretty good overall, I would say. Um, you know, the truth is, the things you think of when you think of New Orleans were not deeply impacted by the storm. The French Quarter spared the worst of it. Business District uh, spared the worst of it. Um, so, yeah, that um, never really took much damage. There are parts of it that haven't recovered, probably never will. Um, but most of the city seems to be making a pretty decent recovery overall. And it's largely thanks to the actions of the citizens because they kind of took charge of things on the ground here and it really produced some pretty impressive results. And they kind of formed neighborhood action committees and took two things and they've done a pretty good job overall. There's still a lot of challenges that lie ahead. Uh, crime is a big one. Population uh, is another. They've got to get, trying to get back to pre-Katrina levels in population. But, city overall is doing very well. The Saints won the Super Bowl last year. They won't be playing for it this year. But um, so things have been going pretty good, if you ask the New Orleans, it seems. That's great. Have you always lived there? I've lived here about eight years now. Wow. What is your greatest challenge helping people with their websites? The greatest challenge I run into is there's always sort of a disjunct. And this was something I ran into myself when I first started dealing with this, was we understand at least what we feel is right and wrong. And we know when we feel like we're doing something that's right and is okay or when someone's done something that's wrong in our eyes to us. But taking that that emotional, almost visceral response there and turning it into something that can be applied productively under the law, can be applied productively in terms of what we can do with the technology we have, um, is a real challenge. It's it's not so much a matter of, you know, learning how to use the tools and knowing what the law is. It's trying to figure out how to apply these things in practical, everyday situations to help people. And that's really where about 90% of my challenge comes from these days, is taking a look at specific situations and trying to figure out a way to connect the tools and the laws with what they need and what they need to understand or do. Do you still write yourself, aside from plagiarism today and on copybyte.com, do you do private writing outside of what's on the Internet? Um, I've actually got a side career as a freelance writer. I write on a variety of sites out there, um, bloggingpro.com, um, freelancewritingjobs.com. I write for freelancewritinggigs.com. I write for both of them write for who is hosting this, and I write for blogging tips. And I've got random articles appearing all over the Internet as well. So I, That's I still great. do a lot of writing. That's great. But um, I do it mostly uh, for some level of pay now at least. But um, you know, I don't write as much personally anymore, but it's not because of plagiarism issues. It's just because 
I'm writing so much for plagiarism and everything else. By the time I get home and it's time for private writing, it's really time for video games at that point. I've <laughs> written enough for one day. I can understand why Laurel Von Fossen called you a rock star. She says to me, he's a rock star. I just love him. He's a rock star. <laughs> she's a, I love her to death. She's uh she is crazy She's a one of a kind, way. isn't she? Yes, she is, definitely. She looks like she's crazy in the best possible way. Well, I really want to thank you for joining us on the show and I really appreciate your time and your input and very sorry about what happened to you and I'm so glad that you used it to turn things around and to help other people with content theft, copyright infringement, and plagiarism and help position people so that they're free and clear of breaking the laws. And yet at the same time, you know, they have a remedy and they have you to go to at copybyte.com and plagiarism today. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Jonathan Bailey. He is the founder of Plagiarism Today and copybyte.com. And you can go there to reach him. And thank you so much. Thank you very much.